Well, this morning, I'd like to uh, invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to start a sermon series in uh, this short little book. It's four uh, short chapters, and we're going to do that over the next four weeks leading into our Christmas season. But I want to ask you a question. What are some of your favorite love stories from history? Maybe you like Romeo and Juliet, um, that tragic tale from, uh, from Shakespeare. Maybe you're a kid like me that grew up in the 90s. And you grew up watching shows like uh, movies like Titanic and you love Jack and Rose. Or maybe you watch shows like I did and you love Zach and Kelly uh, from Saved by the Bell. Maybe you're more uh, of a Johnny Cash and a June Carter kind of person. Whatever the love story is, you can think of these classic love stories uh, from the past. And maybe they made you uh, excited about love or worried about love, whatever it might be. But everybody enjoys a good love story, right? Boy meets girl, girl rejects boy, boy chases girl and wins her heart and they live happily ever after, right? That's how it always works. It's a story we've heard and seen a thousand times in every chick flick, but we continue to watch them, right? A new one comes out and we watch it. These movies keep getting made because people love a love story. There have even been some love stories in history, in history that have changed history. Uh, we can think of a love story like Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Cleopatra was the leader of Egypt at the time. Mark Antony was one of the Caesars in Rome at the time, and they fell in love. And Mark Antony wanted that child to be the leader of Rome. And you can imagine what the other leader of Rome thought of that. So that split history and, and led to some downfall of some nations and some downfalls of some people. Maybe even love stories in your life that you can think of that changed your history. Think of your mom and dad or your grandma and grandpa. Had these relationships not happened, you wouldn't have happened, right? A lot can change because of a relationship. Your personal life can be changed and history can be changed through one love story. So for the next four weeks, we're going to look at a love story that not only changed history, but also has an impact on your life here 3,500 years later, as we sit here today in Commerce America, this is a story that has historical impact and personal impact for all of us. And this is going to teach us a lot about the Bible. I think this is an important thing for us to look at, the book of Ruth, because, like I mentioned, it's in some sense, it's an obscure book of the Bible. Probably none of you, uh, a lot of you probably haven't read the book of Ruth, or if you have, you, you haven't read it recently. Um, but it's a bit of an obscure book in the Bible. It's the eighth book in the Old Testament. So let's be honest, a lot of times when we start our Bible reading plans in January, uh, we don't really make it through Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, right? And it's eight books down the road. So it's a book that we don't always get to in our Bible readings. It's a small book in the Old Testament. It's kind of a hard book as well. It's a story. So we read it and we think, what does this really have to do with me? And how does this apply to my life? But I think this book's going to teach us a few important things. First, it's going to teach us the importance of women in the Bible. In this, this book is one, of only, is one of two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. This is Ruth. What's the other book in the Bible named after a woman? Esther. That's right. Um, but this book, even though it's small, it is a significant book that we can understand. In a day when women are marginalized and the roles of men and women are confused, this book can help us calibrate our thoughts and feelings about that. This book's also going to teach us about who God is. On the pages of this little book, we find God's character masterfully displayed in ways that help this truth sink down into us. Have you ever noticed that sometimes a truth 
just goes down easier when it's wrapped up in a story. Sometimes you can see a truth written down on a piece of paper and you think, okay, that's fine, that's true. But when it's given to you in a story and you feel that truth in a way that you don't when it's just written down, it feels different. So this book is going to help us understand some of these important things about who God is. But so there's some things we need to consider as we dive into this book that, number one, this is a Jewish book. That means this is uh, an Eastern book. It's written from, from an Eastern person's perspective. It has tons of Hebrew culture and customs and idioms all over the book that we're going to have to pause and dive into to really understand what God's saying. So not only is this a Jewish book that has Jewish culture and customs in it, it's also a Jewish story. It's a narrative. So the author is going to be using literary techniques that are meant to make you think and ponder and explore things in a way. Um, just like uh, our stories are written in an artistic way, this is written in an artistic way. That doesn't mean that it's not real, right? But they're taking this historical event... And presenting it to us in a way that we can see it and feel it in a special way. Also, this is a single story. It's meant to be read in one single setting. And we're going to do it over the next month. We're going to take four weeks to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to see these four scenes unfold, like four scenes in a movie or a story each week. And we're going to kind of, we'll stop at the end of each chapter and think about that chapter as a whole. But realizing there's more to the story yet to come. So there will be some cliffhangers, but this book is, is a nice, beautiful story wrapped up into one. And inside of this, and particularly over these next four weeks, you're going to see that God, you're going to see God's sovereignty and his plan for redemption all wrapped up in this beautiful love story that Ruth is involved in. So instead of reading the whole passage this morning, we're going to kind of read a chunk talk about it, read a chunk, and talk about it, and let this kind of, let us experience this as a story. So let's start off, number one, uh, with praying. Let's start off, number one, with praying this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we want to thank you uh, for this morning, God. We thank you for the book of Ruth, and God, we pray that you would help us to understand it and see how this love story has an impact on our lives even today. God, we want to pray that you would um, give us wisdom and understanding. God, I pray that you would shine a light on your word this morning through me, that you would help me to teach this word in a way that is accurate to what it says, but also in a way that we can understand it better. God, I pray that you would help us to take the truths we learned this morning, particularly this one single truth of your sovereignty, and to let it have reign and rule over our lives and our hearts, our emotions and our relationship towards you. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see in this book is the setting, the setting. Number one, the setting. Let's read Ruth chapter one, verse one. It says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab and his wife and his two sons. Let's pause right there. So the first part of what we see in the setting is the timing, the timing. Notice the first words in this book are in the days when the judges rule. So if you look at the book just before Ruth, if you turn one page to the left, you're going to realize you're in the book of Judges. So we see that Ruth is a story that takes place inside of the book of Judges in that time. Judges 21, 25 is a good summary. So if you're in Ruth, just look at the verse right before Ruth chapter 1 at Judges 21, 25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone 
did what was right in his own eyes. That's a summary of the book of Judges. This was a time period after Moses and Joshua had died and they've gone off the scene and there's no leader in Israel and everybody's doing whatever it is they feel like they should be doing. Sounds kind of familiar to nowadays, right? There's been times in our life, in our nation, in our world where we see people doing whatever it is that makes them feel right at the time. The book of Judges is filled with sin because of that, because they're not following the Lord. They're judges that get raised up like Samson and Deborah and people like that, but they're only temporary for specific purposes. There's no leader. So the book of Judges is filled with rampant sexual sin and disobedience to God, stuff that you would have to put a, a, a viewer discretion warning on if we were going to discuss it this morning. People were concerned not with God's will for their life, but for their own will. They did what was right in their own eyes, regardless of what it would do for the Lord or for other people. And not only was this during the time of the judges, it was also during a famine. This book takes place during a famine. Not many of us have have experienced a food scarcity. Maybe some of us can remember times when food was scarce in our life, but not probably to the extent of an actual uh, famine back in this day because there was no Walmart, there was no co-op, there was not a place where you could go and find food. There was a famine in the land. So the author is trying to set you in a place of chaos and scarcity. Maybe think of if the author started this story and saying, on the day of March 15th, 2020, right? Where would that put you guys? Right smack dab at the beginning of the pandemic. And you were like, I don't know What's going to happen? Am I going to catch this virus and turn into a zombie? There's no milk, eggs, or bread on the, at Walmart. What is going on? This is a crazy, hectic time. That's what the author's doing to you right now. He's saying, in the time of the judges, when there was a famine, no leader, no food. Really bad situation. So we go from the time to the place. <clears throat> we find this man, um, let's, let's read in verse 2. Verse 2. The name of the man was named Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of their two children were uh, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So let's pause there again. So we see Elimelech taking his family and leaving Bethlehem. What's funny is the author is giving us a couple of uh, funny cues here with the name of the place and the person, right? The place was named Bethlehem. That's where uh, he was taking his family. Bethlehem is a pretty famous place in our, in our hearts, right? Jesus was born there. David was, that's David's hometown as well. And we're going to notice that Bethlehem means house of bread. But what's the irony? There's no bread in the house of bread. Elimelech finds himself um, without food in the house of bread. So he leaves the place uh, called Bethlehem and goes to Moab. Moab, again, is a place that Israel and Moab do not have a great history together. They're actually, in some sense, kindred folk. They're cousins. The, the, person, the, the nation of Moab is named after the son of Lot and Lot's daughter. You did hear that right. So this, this country was born out of a very uh, an ancestral set, setting and not looked on well by the Israelites. And then we see also later on the people of Moab, the leader of Moab tries to curse Israel through the prophet Balaam. We also see that in Numbers 25, Moabite women seduce some of the Israelite men and that resulted in the worship of idols and the death of thousands of Israelites because of that sin. So suffice it to say there's some serious racial tension between Israel and Moab. And some Israelites left to go to Moab. 
They left the place where God put them and said, I'm going to go to this foreign nation that has a bad history with us. That's the place that we find our, 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 our uh, story. Also, we find the people. Elimelech, his name means God is king. Yet, it was took place in a time where there was no king. And instead of trusting the Lord in the place where he was put, he decides to leave and go to a foreign nation. And what happens from there? Let's pick up in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives... The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the, women, so the woman, referring to Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So in this setting, we've seen the, the time, the place, the people, and now we see the problem. This woman was left with her two daughters-in-law, Women left alone in the most chaotic and dangerous time in Israel's history. Naomi has no husband, no sons, no brothers, and two ladies that she's responsible for now, but she cannot provide for. They have no food and no family. That is the desperate situation that we find Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth in. And we're supposed to feel that desperation of, What am I supposed to do? Remember, go back to uh, that moment I mentioned earlier about being in the pandemic, right? I I didn't have, Eliza was just getting done with a formula around that time. But imagine having somebody you're responsible for, like a baby, but not being able to go to Walmart and buy the formula you need for that baby, right? That's the feeling that Naomi's in, this desperation. I've got these people I'm responsible for, and I can't take care of them. And not only that, I've lost everything that was important to me, my husband and my two sons, that's where we find Naomi. That's the setting of this story. So the, the, the story picks up in verse 6 with a suggestion. This is Naomi's suggestion to her two daughters-in-law. Let's read in verse 6. It says this, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me and for your sake, exceedingly bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi is pretty convincing, right? She says to her daughters-in-law, go back to Moab. Go find husbands. You're young enough to go and have husbands. I don't have any more kids. 
And what she meant by that was in Hebrew culture, this is another one of those things that sounds weird to us, but this is the way they handled things back then. In Hebrew culture, if, if, a, if a husband died, his brother would fulfill the marital duties and provide a son to that, that woman if she had no children. Um, it was a way to, to uh, um, continue on a line, a legacy that was extremely important in that time. And Naomi's saying, I have nothing. I can't even give you another son so that you can carry on your name, carry on the name of my family. She has nothing to give them. So she says, go on back, find husbands for yourselves. Even if I had a kid today, would you wait until he was of age so you could marry him? Would you just be a widow that whole time? Pretty convincing, right? Well, Orpah hears this. She sees that Naomi's broken uh, her broken heart for her, her daughters-in-law in verse 13. And Orpah responds by kissing her and saying goodbye. But Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. That's the same language that clinging to is the same language we find in the book of Genesis talking about when a husband and wife get married, a son will leave his family and cling to his wife. This is a picture of this intimate relationship of, of this daughter-in-law clinging to her mother. Not saying that they're married, but the point is saying that that's how close she felt about her mother-in-law. She wanted to cling to her and make a family with her, to be with her. So we see that Naomi's convincing, but Ruth is committed. Ruth clings to Naomi. Ruth is making a decision by doing that. Ruth is making this decision to forsake her nation, her gods, her religion, her family. She even commits to be buried with Naomi. Let's read these verses. Let's see how Ruth responds. In verse 15, it says, and she said, um, uh, Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. For your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord um, do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth is committed and she's saying in that phrase, I'm leaving everything behind and I'm committed to you. Inside of that relationship, though, with Naomi is also a relationship with the Lord, right? What that means is I'm forsaking my gods and I'm committed to the God of Israel. Your God will be my God. I'm going to go be where your people are. I'm going to be buried in your place. Nothing's going to separate us and nothing's going to separate me, me, separate me from your God. And like most of us do with our kids that won't listen to us and they get stubborn headed, uh, uh, get hard headed and stubborn. Verse 18 says, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She was at that point you get with your kids where you're just like, all right, nothing else to say. And she, both Ruth and Naomi, start the long journey back to Bethlehem. Third, we find the sorrow. We've seen the setting, the suggestion, and now we see the sorrow. You can imagine as Naomi rolls into town, everyone sees it, right? This is a small town like Commerce, maybe even more so in this kind of more like a, what we would see as a village setting. Everybody knowing and depending on one another. You don't travel to Sam's and go 30 miles away to do all this stuff. Everything that you do happens in this town. So when Naomi walks back into town, you can imagine the people saying, is that Naomi? I haven't seen her 
and forever. Who does she have with her? Is that, is that a Moabite woman with her? You can imagine everybody talking about this. The town is surprised. People are remembering who Naomi was and maybe even running up to her saying, Naomi, you're back. We remember you. We're so glad you're here. You were such a sweet little girl. You lived up to your name. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. It means pleasant. But let's see how Naomi responds to these people greeting her. She says this in verse 19. So the two of them went. Uh, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And Naomi responds. She says to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. So this is a key. When you're reading your Bible and you see by somebody's name, you see a little footnote, a little number one or a little number two. Go down to the bottom. You'll see it says Naomi means pleasant. But Mara means bitter. Naomi has lost her identity. She probably lived up to that name of Pleasant. She was probably an amazing wife, an amazing mom, an amazing Israelite. She was probably this pleasant person. But she says, do not call me pleasant. Call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. She has lost her identity. She has lost her family. The most important parts of her life stripped away her husband, her son's. Everything taking, taken away from her. And she says God had dealt bitterly with, with her. And it's, she says that his hand was against her. So she lost her identity and her family. And we get to this point and we think, has she also lost her faith? Has she lost her faith? I don't think that she has. I don't think that she has. She's actually recognizing the situation that's at hand. And she doesn't pretend like God is nowhere to be found in this. She's not saying, man, God tried to help me, but he couldn't. Uh, God wants better for me. None of these trite little things that we might say in difficult times. She acknowledged and says the God's hand was against me. So she recognizes that God had a hand in her situation, but she never blames the Lord for evil. Or for wrong. She's like a female Job, isn't she? Remember what happened to Job? He lost everything. His, his family, his body, his children, all of these things he lost. And at the end he says, the Lord gave to me and the Lord took away. Should we only accept good from God and not accept trouble from him? That's Naomi's heart, I believe, in this. She's recognizing God has a hand in my situation. God has a hand in my situation. So instead of losing her hope, I think we find a small seedling of hope in her still, even though she's in sorrow. And she says about God, she, rec- she calls him two different names in this. She calls him two different names in this section. She says, um, well, I, I paused, didn't I? Let's read that, that verse 20. This is her response. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitter with me. 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She uses two different names for God there. She uses the Almighty, and she uses Yahweh. El- Almighty would be El Shaddai. Maybe you've heard that song from, from a, a ways ago, El Shaddai. That's the Almighty. That's this powerful, great picture of God, El Shaddai. But he, she also refers to God as his covenant name, Yahweh. 
the name given, uh, the name he reveals himself to the people of Israel. I am who I am, his relational name. So we find Ruth wrestling with this idea of God, his greatness and his goodness. We find ourselves in that same place that we find Naomi, right? How can a great God let something like this happen to me if he's so powerful? If God is so good, why would he allow something to happen like this to me? She's wrestling with these things like all of us do. If you're in this room and you're breathing, you have probably felt this this struggle before as well. Why is this happening to me? Is God not great? Did he want to protect me but couldn't? Is God not good? Didn't he know this would hurt and be painful for me? We find ourselves sitting in the same place that Naomi said, struggling and wrestling with this idea of, of how God interacts in the world. And for Naomi, this is the end of her story, right? Naomi doesn't get to know that there's chapters two, three, and four. For Naomi, in this moment, that's where she is left. She's left sitting there, bitter. That's the end of her story. But we, praise God, we get to see the whole story. We get to know that there's a chapter two, a chapter three, and a chapter four coming. And as we get to the end of, of Naomi's, uh, this, this passage here, we're, she's left sitting in the ashes, but we know later on that she's not going to be sitting in the ashes. She's going to be clothed with beauty later on, but she doesn't get that. So what can we learn from, from Naomi here? Here's some things that you need to remember when you are in your sorrow, what to do when you're in sorrow. Number one, know that God is sovereign over your sorrow. Know that God's sovereign over your sorrow. Like Naomi, realize that God is not unaware of your situation. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing was unplanned by him. Nothing catches him off guard. It's not like he wanted something better for you, but was unable to provide it. She recognizes God is sovereign over my sorrow. But also I want you to see Ruth's bitterness in that situation has also blinded her. So no... Uh, know that bitterness can blind you as well to the good things in your life. What is bitter, right? What does bitter mean? It means that you, it's like you just cannot taste the, the sweetness or the savoriness in the thing, right? Think about a lime or a lemon. Those things are full of sugar, but when you, when you taste one, you don't think that's sweet. You think that, that's a bitter, sour taste. It masks all the sugar inside of it because of that bitterness. Bitterness in our life can do that as well. It can blind us to the good things that are happening all around us. Think about what Naomi missed in the midst of all that. God broke the famine in Bethlehem. There was a famine that humans could not reverse, and God reversed it. He broke the famine in Bethlehem. And he brought that news of that famine being broke to Naomi's ears when she was in foreign Moab. Somehow she hears about the goodness of God all the way there. God provided Ruth and Orpah to Naomi who loved her even after all the family ties were taken away. And God convinced Ruth to show his kindness to Naomi and cling to her. All around Naomi, in the midst of her bitterness, she was surrounded by the love of God, but she wasn't able to see it. Friends, let me encourage you, look for the love of God in the midst of your sorrow because it's all around you. Maybe even, friends, remind your friends who are in the midst of sorrow of God's love. Don't tell them, hey, don't be bitter. Allow them to experience that sorrow that they're feeling, but remind them, God is all around you 
He's doing so many good things for you. So know that God's sovereign over your sorrow. Know that your bitterness can make you blind. But third, know that your setbacks are often a setup for what God's about to do. Your setbacks are often a setup for what God is about to do. Which brings us to our fourth thought. We've seen the setting. We've seen the suggestion that Naomi made. We've seen the sorrow that, that Naomi was in. And now we see this setup that we're going to see over the next few weeks. But I'm not going to tell you exactly how it ends. But just know that God's about to do something amazing that changes the, 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 the history of Israel and changes our history, specifically changes Naomi and Ruth's history. And all this is the shape of what, how God sovereignly deals with us. This is the shape that we see in the Bible, light before darkness. This is the shape of how God's sovereignty works. It's like the Israelites in Egypt in slavery before they get taken into the promised land. It's like Joseph in prison before becoming second in command. It's like Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire before they get delivered. It's like Jesus on the cross and being buried in the tomb before raising to new life. It's like you in the depths of your sin hopeless and broken before the gift of faith and eternal life is given to you. This is the picture of redemption. And we get this small glimpse here in the first chapter of Ruth. A setback is, all, is often followed by a setup of God bringing himself glory and bringing you good. This leaves us with Ruth and Naomi returning from Moab. And we see these last few verses so Naomi, in verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, he, who returned from the, country far, from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Barley harvest was the, the first um, thing that would kind of bloom and harvest at this region of the world at this time. So they're at the, they come to the, the, the nation of Israel at the point, at the perfect time, for them to be taken care of. Remember their problem? No food and no family. And we get just a sliver of hope here. They get back right at the time when food's literally falling off of the trees for them to start to eat. There's a sliver of hope. Now, that's going to be the cliffhanger for this time. We're going to see how that works out later. But do you find yourself in sorrow like Ruth and Naomi? Maybe this is the setup in your life before God is about to do something great in your life. Because we've seen in this picture, he is sovereign over our suffering and is even always at work in our sorrow to bring about his good or his glory and our good in our life. Let's pray.